So first, a confession. I am not right about God, all right? And another thought, neither are you, all right? So here's the thing, right? Um, it, somewhere walking the earth tonight is the rightest person about God, all right? Somebody. Somebody out of seven billion people is the rightest person about God. I don't know who that is. They're probably sitting in a cave in Nepal somewhere, but I know they're not in this room, okay? And, and, and that's, the, that's the truth of it. So, so whoever the rightest person is about God walking the earth probably maybe has might have scratched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is they haven't even touched the surface and they're the rightest right so that means we know less than that which is why the world is sick of people who know less than one one thousandth of one percent of what God is being vitriolic and dogmatic about the one one thousandth of one percent we think we know calling that the only truth and then going see if you're not like us then you're out that, there's no more room for that, right? We need to be humble enough to go, wait a minute, we haven't scratched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is. We're on an eternal journey as well. So I just want to participate in one one millionth of one percent of what that journey might be. Because here, here's the thing, right? If I understand one one thousandth of one percent, and you understand one one thousandth of one percent, and by some weird coincidence, we happen to understand different one one thousandth of one percent, if instead of getting dogmatic with you and shunning you because you're not like me, if we just humble ourselves and listen to one another, we might actually leave with two one-thousandths of one percent, literally doubling our understanding about God in one moment, all right? And so my goal tonight is to not tell you this is the only way to look at something. My goal tonight is to participate and be a catalyst for conversation. That's my goal, because if we leave here tonight with Jesus getting bigger, the cross working better, the resurrection being central, and scriptures getting bigger, not smaller, then that's what we want to do. So last year when I was here, we did a whole thing on the Bible and historical arc and problems with the Bible and static appropriation and genre confusion and all this kind of stuff. So I want to follow up with that by talking about the nature of truth, all right? So let me, let, let, let's, let me let's bring this up, all right? So the nature of truth. Truth is best expressed in three dimensions or in three legs. And if you remove any of these three legs from truth, it's not less truthful. It's not. You can't get more truthful than truth. Truth is truth. But it can be expressed in more meaningful ways or less meaningful ways. Truth can be expressed in more entertaining ways or less entertaining ways. It's one thing to be telling the truth. It's another thing to be boring. It's a whole nother thing to be entertaining. It's, it's a whole nother thing to pick the best way to do it. And truth is best expressed through three dimensions. And the best, most meaningful way to express truth is when we include all three. So I'm going to take my time. If I don't get through this whole talk, I don't mind because I'd rather us get what we're doing than to not. So let's talk slowly about this. So first, the first leg of truth is called the literal or the objective. The second one is called the symbolic or the meaning level of truth. And then the third leg of truth is called the evental nature of truth. And truth is best expressed with all three. So let's go through all three and give them a good definition. First, the literal. The literal is something happened. Somebody wrote something down. Somebody told a story. Something was recorded and God breathed on it. That's the literal. Now, sometimes the literal is fiction. Everybody take a deep breath. The Bible's full of fiction, okay? And you already know that to be true. 
for, for instance, if I took you to Israel and we asked the historian, could you take us to the farm where the parable of the prodigal son actually happened? He would look at us like, what? That's a made-up story. That is fiction. Jesus was telling a fictional story. But just because it's fiction doesn't mean it's not true. The, the idea that the truth is best expressed in straight literalness is, is absolutely farcical. Sometimes the most profound truths are expressed in songs, poems, plays, and parables, right? Psalms, poems, plays, parables. That actually alliterated. I just realized that. Psalms, poems, plays... And parable, sometimes the literal is fiction. And you don't do it any favors by trying to interpret it literally. Now, is the parable of the prodigal son literal? No, it's a made-up story. But the literal part of it is that Jesus literally told the story. So it's grounded in Jesus telling a story. But if the original author intended the text to be fiction, it doesn't do us or it any favors to try to interpret it literally. You don't want to interpret the Song of Solomon literally. Why? Because the original author intended it to be a poem. Was her nose actually a tower? No. Were her legs really cedar trees? No. Were her breasts really as big as the hills of Bashan? Absolutely not. This is poetry, right? Now, but it's literal in the sense that somebody wrote that down. There is an objective, literal nature to it. But the most profound way to express truth is not ever found in the literal. It's always found in an infinite exploration of the meaning of it. Look, if you read the Noah's Ark story and your first thought is, we need to build a boat to prove that happened, you are literally the most boring person on the planet, okay? Right? If you... If, if, you, if you read the Noah's Ark story and your only thought is, we got to prove that actually happened, right? Or if you read the Noah's Ark story and you think, that's a Mesopotamian poem. That is a retelling of the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Atrahasis, and the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we need to prove it. You are also the most boring person on the earth. Why? Because there's so many profound meanings going on in the Noah's Ark story that to get bogged down in the literalness doesn't make us less truthful. It just makes us less meaningful. And that's two different things. Let, let me see if I can illustrate this. If we walked out here tonight and there was a sober person, not a drunk person, drunk person you'd understand. Let's say there's a sober person completely in his right mind and he's going to the toilet on an American flag. So, so this, this totally sober person is going to the toilet on an American flag or if you're not really fond of America, the Detroit Lions logo. Now, either way. Now, would that irritate us? Yes, of course it would. Why? It's just a flag. It's just thread and cloth. That's all a flag literally is. It's just thread and cloth. Why would it upset us for somebody to go to the toilet on thread and cloth? It's not because of the literalness of the thread and cloth. The, the, the power of the flag or any flag is not found in the literal thread and cloth. It's found in the infinite explorations of the meanings of what that flag stands for. Whether it's the banner for the Detroit Lions, whether it's the banner for the Detroit Tigers, whether it's, whether, whether it's the American flag, whether it's the Christian flag. The power of the flag is not found in the literal thread and the literal cloth. The power of the flag is found in the infinite explorations of the meanings of it. Let me illustrate this from scripture. Let's take something that no matter what your Christian background is, unites all of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? So let's take the cross and resurrection. Is the power of the cross and resurrection only found in the literal happening of it? 
Well, absolutely not. Let's say, for the sake of example, that somebody dedicates their whole life to proving Jesus literally lived, he literally died, and he literally rose again. And let's say this person believes with all of their heart that if people knew that Jesus literally lived, literally died, and literally rose again, it would change the world. So he dedicates his whole life, 30 years of academic study, archaeology, research, putting together all the historical and physical evidences that this actually literally happened. And let's say he puts all of his findings in a 450-page thesis. And let's say that he doesn't even want to make a dollar from it. He does this so well that it would stand up in the Supreme Court of Michigan from an evidential standpoint. And let's say he doesn't want to profiteer on it. He simply puts it on the internet for free that with one click, anybody can download this 450-page document proving Jesus literally lived, proving Jesus literally died, and proving Jesus literally rose from the dead. How many of us would agree with his conclusion? Okay, that's not a trick. All of us, all of us, right? We're, we're Christians, right? We, okay, let's back up. All right. Christianity affirms that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. I affirm that. You affirm that. So let's try again. So a guy dedicates his whole life to proving Jesus literally lived, literally died, literally rose from the dead and does such a good job with the evidential nature of it that he writes a thesis that would stand up in the Supreme Court of Michigan and yet he doesn't want to profiteer from it. He puts it on the internet for free and with one click you can download his 450-page thesis proving Jesus literally lived, literally died, and literally rose from the dead. How many of us would agree with his conclusion? Yep. How many of us would be bored by page two? all of us. Why? Because the best found truths are not best expressed only in proving the literalness of it, but rather an infinite exploration of the meaning of it. I would suggest that, that the truth of the Noah's Ark story is not found in trying to figure out where God put all the elephant poop. I, I, I would say the profound truth of the Noah's Ark story is found in the fact that twice in the first six chapters of the Bible, God counters the watery chaos in such a way that brings beauty and order and new life and health and new creation everywhere he sees it. In Genesis chapter one, he conquers the primordial watery chaos and he brings out beauty and order and new creation. In Genesis chapter six, he faces the same watery chaos and he conquers it again. The idea is, is that if God could overcome that level of watery chaos and bring out beauty and order of new creation, what couldn't he do with our little bit of chaos if we submit that to him? That is the idea and that will preach. Now, the resurrection, the power of the resurrection is not found in proving it literally happened. The power of the resurrection is found in the infinite explorations of the meanings of it. Like, death doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Like, if we were wrong about death, what else could we be wrong about? Like, maybe we need to open more conversations about God instead of closing them down. Like, you never know where God might burst forth with new creation right in the middle of what you think the end is. That resurrection says what you think is the end is only a new beginning. That God is not that which gives us meaning and certainty. Rather, God is that which enters into our uncertainty and what we think meaning is and bust it wide open. That God, in fact, is trauma. Christianity is 
is birthed in a dead man walking again alive. That is traumatic. Trauma is defined as any experience we have that does not fit the way we thought the world worked and fundamentally shifts the way we see our whole world after that. If Christianity is anything, it is trauma. God is trauma. If you go back and look at the story, a dead man, in your experience, do dead people stay dead? Yes. So if you saw a dead person walking around, trauma fits that description. Go back and read the passion stories. Two women go to a tomb and find it empty. That's trauma. Two men gleaming like white and lightning stand beside them and say hello. That is trauma. Jesus walks through a wall, says, how's it going? That is trauma. Even his friends at that point are like, come on, son of God, use the door. You freaky people out around here, right? It's that. It's trauma. For the God of the universe to wash people's feet instead of demanding his feet to be washed, that is not how gods are supposed to act. That is the traumatic. That is trauma. For God to forgive people who are torturing him instead of destroying them. That is traumatic. That God is not that which gives us meaning. God is that which renders all things meaningful. God is the name we give to the experience we have that fundamentally shifts the way we see our whole world after that experience. That if, if somebody was to ask me, why does Courage Church exist? I would say Courage Church exists to be the traumatic. To be the experience with God that fundamentally shifts the way people see their whole world after that experience and they can't possibly see it the same way after that. Resurrection says that you never know what God might do to what you think the end of the story is and bust it wide open with infinite new possibilities. Resurrection says you get a clean slate, a fresh start, a second chance, a mulligan, and an opportunity to write a better story. Now we're preaching. See? Now that's better. That's better than proving it actually happened. That's actually, the, the New Testament spends zero time proving Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because they all saw it. <laughs> they were assuming people knew that. Resur the, the New Testament spends a lot of time defining the infinite meanings for what that means for our world. Let's see if I can illustrate this with a baby. Okay? So let's say you're really pregnant, you know, like really pregnant, and it comes time for your birth, right? Now, listen, I've never, I don't have any kids. I've never seen a birth. I don't think I've missed much. I will say, from what I see on TV, it looks like a hectic thing, right? <laughs> the process by which a life goes from here to there is flipping hectic, right? right? So everything, let me clarify this before we go forward. Everything I know about childbirth, I learned on TV, which is <laughs> obvious where you get all your facts from. But, so what I understand is, is a woman is very, very pregnant, and it comes time for her to give birth. It's something called the water breaks, right? This is evidently a common thing. Some woman goes, oh, my water broke, right? That's what it looks like on television, right? And then she goes to the labor and delivery room, right? And, and, and it just looks something like this. I don't know. And then at just the right moment, the baby gets born. So it looks something like this. It's my best effort at this. Now, <laughs> the doctor, the doctor does whatever doctors do at that point, you know. Once again, a hectic thing. And then they, and then they hand the baby to the mom. Now, think about everything that changes with this one presence of new life that weighs about seven pounds. Everything. Is the power in that literal baby no, no, there's something about that new life that does something. Like, the vainest woman you've ever met, 
like the one who would never go outside without full makeup, will allow her photo to be taken in the most unattractive ways. <laughs> like she just got out of labor, and she's like, oh, <laughs> right? And, and she's the vainest person you've ever met, and you're thinking, Susie would never have done that. What, what changed? New life. That new life changed everything. And then at some point, they hand the new baby to the dad, right? And so this new dad is now holding, let's for the sake of this example, let's say it's a baby girl. And the new dad is overcome with emotion. He actually can't find words, right? From what I understand from new dads, when they hold their baby girl for the first time, this is a common experience. They can't, if, you, if somebody was to say, literally explain how you feel right now, they couldn't do it. It's hard to explain holding new life in bullet points, right? So, so the new dad is overcome with emotion. And he doesn't even know what to say, so he finally just goes, oh, oh my God. Wow. Like, wow. Like, this is the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world, right? Well, what would happen if Sheldon Cooper was in the room, right? <laughs> and so Sheldon Cooper goes, what? You're not a lover of truth. Actually, there's going to be a lot of girls that are uglier than her. And there's going to be a lot of girls that are prettier than her. Actually, if you love truth, you would see that, that girl's going to be somewhere in the middle. So if you were actually a lover of truth, you would have said, oh, this is the most average girl in the whole wide world. Right? Well, if somebody did that, you wouldn't even know what to say. You'd be like, come on, Captain Literal. I'm not... I'm not, I'm not talking about this, this little seven-pound baby is not literally the most beautiful woman in the whole world. The, 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 to even talk about a baby with any sort of attractiveness or sexuality is sick anyway. It's, it's not, it's not, she's not literally the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. She, she, she has redefined beauty to me. So, so you're not talking about literal. You're talking about the meaning of this new life, right? But let's say this. Let's say that on your way home from the hospital, your neighbor nine doors down, whom you've never met, has blue balloons in the front yard with a big sign, welcome to the world, Billy. Well, you would assume that the woman in that house has had a baby. It is a baby boy, and his name is Billy. And you could fully affirm the literal nature of that new baby without that baby meaning one thing to you. You'll likely never think about Billy again after they take the blue balloons down. But your baby, you affirm the literal nature of that baby, but you also affirm that that baby means everything to you. But let's say you get home, and let's say your social activity of choice is dart throwing. So the first night back, you go to your dart club, and you throw darts, and you come home, and the next night back, you say, I'll be back back, and you go to your dart club, and you throw darts, and then the third night back, you say, I'll be back after darts, and you go to your dart club, and you throw darts. The fourth night back, you say, I'll see you after darts, and your wife says, excuse me, we have a baby now, and you say, I know, I know, <laughs> and I fully affirm the literal nature of that new life. I 100% believe in that, yep. But not just that, that baby means more than everything in the world to me, right? But until the presence of that new truth 
has fundamentally shifted the way you see your whole world. It's not less truthful, it's just less meaningful. Eventful doesn't mean we believe that something happened. It, we're done with that. Listen, listen, if you don't believe that Jesus died and rose again, I would urge you to start there. But the world is tired of Christians ending there. See, people over the world say, Shane, how do you feel about the church declining? I don't think the church is declining. I think the church is being forced to grow up. The idea that the cross and resurrection should somehow just be a bullet point on a pamphlet that we affirm, boring, boring, boring if it stays there. Now, if you're not there, that's a good starting point, but that's infantile in terms of growth. At some point, Christianity cannot be a movement that simply affirms the cross and resurrection as a literal thing, but rather something that we've infinitely explored the meanings of to ultimately shift how we see our whole world. Eventual is not we believe something happened. Eventual is something has happened that has fundamentally shifted the way we see all other happenings after that. Now, if you want to express and explore the truths in the scripture in the most meaningful way, we need to commit ourselves to being people who explore the literal, the meaning, and the eventual together. Because here's the thing. If you remove any one of those, it's not less truthful. You're still telling the truth. It's just less meaningful. If the eventual is not tied to some sort of exploration of the meaning, it's not less truthful. It's just less meaningful. If the meaning is not tied to something objective, then that gets really willy-nilly, like it seemed right to me. But when the, when the meaning is tied to the objective and then they're put together to form the eventual nature of truth, then you don't, have not, you don't just have truth, you have truth expressed in the most meaningful ways possible. Because resurrection is not something we should believe in. Resurrection is a fundamental way of seeing the world. Like we should wake up never believing tomorrow is simply a repeat of yesterday because resurrection does not allow that. Resurrection says you never know what God might do to your tomorrow that changes everything fundamentally forever. You don't know what, what new start, fresh, fresh start, second chances, clean slates, and the opportunity to write a better story. You don't know. You don't know what that means. The cross should not be something we believe in. The cross should be a way of seeing the world like Paul called the cross the end of hostility between people, that the cross should fundamentally shift the way we handle conflict. The Paul said that people who connect to the cross should do all things without grumbling or disputing with one another. Paul said that the cross was the evidence that we don't serve a God who sits high and mighty, but a God that realizes and identifies with our suffering. For the God of the universe to humble himself, put on flesh and blood, allow himself to be crucified at the hands of a local government for the sake of all of humanity does not have one meaning. It defies meaning and renders all things meaningful. Now, when we talk about scripture, we need to commit ourselves to talking about all three facets. Let's talk about it this way. There's oneness, but then there's sameness. And here's the problem, right? The problem is never the doctrine. The problem is always our imagination of how doctrine works, right? So if I say, should we be more unified or less unified? Everybody would say, more unified. Nobody's against unity. No one's like, no! We need more disrepair and disunity and chaos. Nobody. But here's the problem with the word unity, right? Here's the problem with the word oneness. It's when we say oneness, but we see and expect sameness. Those are, those are two different things. 
right? The, the, the problem is never the doctrine. The problem is always how we see that doctrine working, right? So even on obvious things, right? So I'll give you an example, right? How many of us, this is no tricks, I promise. How many of us would believe we're fully forgiven by the finished work of Jesus? All of us, right? right? How many of us have seen ourselves guilty in the last 30 days? Right? So we believe we're forgiven, but we imagine ourselves guilty. Right? It's a problem. I'll give you a better example. How many of us believe, no tricks, I promise, that God is not a singularity, rather a divine relationship between three that is so symbiotic they act as one? Right? The, the, the theological word for that is uh, post-225 AD was called Trinity. Trinity was just an attempt for the early church fathers to come up with a word that, that comes up with, what does that even mean, right? Before 225 AD, it was called the perichoresis. I love that word even better. Peri is perimeter, choresis is choreograph, a divine dance, in other words, right? So, so all of us would believe that God is not a singularity. Rather, God is a divine relationship between three acting as one. However... I've asked this question all over the world because I travel all over the world. I say, when you pray, what do you picture in your head? Number one answer, I picture a guy on a throne. Right. So you believe God is a divine relationship between three, but you picture a single white dude on a throne. That's Zeus. That's Apollo. That's Hermes, right? So... So you believe, it's possible to have an orthodox doctrine, but a pagan imagination. And that's a problem, right? Number two answer. Number one answer, a God on the throne. Number two answer, I just picture Jesus. And then you push him a little bit. Which Jesus? <laughs> like my friend Jesus? That Jesus? Or like Middle Eastern sort of swarthy hippie Jesus? Are like blonde hair, blue eyed, sweet smelling of lavender and dal soap Jesus. Which Jesus? And they're like, shut up, just Jesus. Oh, just Jesus. You mean your version of Jesus? See, you're saying Jesus, God, Bible, truth, but, what, but when you say the word God, we just picture ourselves with a giant megaphone, you know? It's just our version of things, right? So, no, number three answer is I picture a father, right? And then you push him a little bit. Whose father? My father? No. Your father? No. Third century Spanish peasant's father? No. 16th century Swiss monk's father? No. Just a father. So what kind of father? I don't know. So like an ambiguous father? Yeah. Because that would be an awesome song, wouldn't it? You're an ambiguous father. It's who you are. Right? Like, what is that? So now here's the problem with all three of those things. All three of those things are singularities. So it's possible to have an orthodox doctrine but a pagan imagination of how that doctrine works. Th this is why, by the way, all, all naming of God has to be instantly coupled with denaming. And all knowing must be instantly coupled with unknowing or we create an idol in our own image. We're saying God, Jesus, Bible, truth, scripture, but what we mean is our version of God, Jesus, Bible, truth, scripture. Even if I say obvious things, like even if I say God is love, is that truth or not? Yeah, but I have to instantly dename that. If I say God is love, I have to instantly qualify that by saying, but not my concept of love. 
My concepts of love is too limited. It can't just be my concept of love. Otherwise, I'm saying God, but what I mean is my concept of love, right? If I say God is a father, is that true? Sure, but I have to instantly dename that and say, not my concept of a father. Got to be bigger than that, right? Can't just be that. So all naming must be coupled with denaming and all knowing coupled with unknowing or we get idolatry, right? Which is interesting. The word denomination in its root word is denom, to dename something. So actually denominations are supposed to be more about what they don't believe than what they do. Anyway, so, so it's that. It's more about the unknowing than the knowing. Otherwise, we just create God in our own image instead of embracing the surprise and resurrection and the trauma. See, the Bible affirms oneness. And I think it affirms oneness to a radical degree. I, in my opinion, I think it affirms oneness in a way that would still make us uncomfortable today. It was radical when they wrote it, but it's even still radical today. Like in Christ, there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What? Are we actually ready for that conversation? For Christ is all and is in all things and in him all things hold together for the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. In other words, to Paul, if you can see someone, if you can look at someone and not see Christ in them, it's you. You need to change your seeing. So, so in some real radical way, the Bible affirms oneness. And actually, if you're interested, science has proven this without being able to explain it. It's called, if you're, if you're a nerd, it's called quantum entanglement, right? Here's what it says. That if I get close enough to somebody, my subatomic particles jump into them. So things smaller than electrons. So this is my friend, Jamie Pine. We've been friends for years. So I'm comfortable enough to illustrate this with him. <laughs> so what science says without being able to explain it is that right now, my subatomic particles jumped into Jamie. Like I'm in you right now. <laughs> like, like, did you feel that? Yes. Right. Yes. And, and his subatomic particles have jumped into me. Right? Now, here's, here's why that's important. If I'm kind to him, affirm him, encourage him, when I leave, my subatomic particles jump back into me, edified and encouraged. But if I'm cruel to him, if I insult him, you're an idiot. You're ugly. No one would ever like you. If I insult him, degrade him, if I call him names, if I use racial, racist epithets that, that, that obviously degrade him as a social human being, it, it, if I do that to him, it might seem innocuous, like sticks and stones, whatever, but you know what? When I leave, my subatomic particles jump back into me and they're wounded. So I cannot hurt him without knowing I'm gonna hurt myself. Because if there's only one God and God is holding the whole thing together, then I can't possibly hurt you without knowing 
that I'm going to harm myself because God is the ground of being holding all things together. So the Bible affirms oneness to a radical degree with zero expectation of sameness. That's the cool part, right? Like you have to do intellectual hula hoops to say Paul and James agreed with one another. No way you could get there, not and be intellectually genuine. No way. No way that Peter and Paul always saw eye to eye. No way. Yet they're both celebrated in oneness. You have to do intellectual hula hoops to say that Solomon and Paul had the same opinion on marriage. <laughs> Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. Paul's like, please make it your last decision. <laughs> he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. <laughs> Come on, man. There's oneness. Are Solomon and Paul one? Yeah. Are they the same? No. So the Bible affirms this incredible oneness with no expectation of sameness. So, so let, let's say it one, one other way. There's belief. But what's more important than belief is the imagination of how the belief works. And what's more important than values is our behavior. Like, I love, the, I love Jordan Peterson, and somebody tried to corner him. I thought this was brilliant. They said, do you believe in God? And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, what matters is that I live as though I do. He said, because there's lots of people who believe in God but they're just theist jerks. He said, what's more important than whether I believe in God or not is that when you look at my life, it's obvious by how I live whether I believe in God or not. See, there's one thing. It's one thing to have a fish on your car and identify as a Christian to the whole world while pointing your middle finger at the sky when somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's a whole nother thing for how you believe. Let's say it this way. It's what's, le what's more important than what you believe is how you believe what you believe. Right? And so this is how we talk about truth in the most dynamic ways. Let, let me show you a scripture. That, I love this scripture by Paul. Um, let, let's, first, let's do it this way. See, since we're all one but not the same, how we navigate diverse facets with others matters greatly. Here's the question. How do we process difference while honoring oneness? That's the only way you grow. I was, um, I was talking to a pastor the other day, and he's a good friend of mine, like a really good friend. And he said, Shane... Tell me my biggest weakness. And I was like, do I have to? Seriously? Can we not just watch the game? The game's on. Seriously. I don't want to get in a conversation with you about your biggest weakness. Right? He said, no, I'm serious. I really respect you. Tell me my biggest weakness. So I just said, okay. Tell me the last five books you read. He said, are you saying I don't read? I said, no. We can add insecurity to the list. I'm asking, what's the last five books you read? And he told me, and I said, that's your biggest weakness. All five of those books are already in your tribe. You're just reading people you agree with, and you're refusing to wrestle with people you disagree with. That's the problem. Because see, if there's only one God, and Christ is the solid center, we should never be threatened by any new idea. We should be able to wrestle with anything. Like I love Gamaliel's advice in Acts 4. If it's of God, it'll stand the test of time. If it's not, it's going to die off anyway. So why get bothered by all that? If there's, only, if there's only one God, 
then it's okay to wrestle with all these things. Well, let, me, let me just show you this. This is, um, this is 1 Corinthians. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He's calling them babies. This is a, an insult, actually. I fed you with milk, not even solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. Now watch how Paul defines fleshly people. For while there's jealousy and strife amongst you, are you not merely of the flesh behaving in a human way? So here's my question for us tonight. Is there jealousy and strife amongst us? Do we constantly try to prove our point or are we willing to hear the other person out? See, Western people, we approach the Bible with, I don't want to be wrong. What's the one right way? Jewish people approach the Bible with, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out. Hey, if you've got a different way of reading that, tell me. Tell me. Tell me. I, I met with somebody this year that in my 43 years of existence, I've never considered. He gave me a way of reading the prodigal son story that I've never considered in my whole life. It was amazing. I don't know whether he's right or wrong. Doesn't matter. I was amazed by how he read that fictional story in a way that was riveting. And if I just automatically dismiss it because I've never thought of it before, I can't grow. Watch what he says. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants to whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. We're all one, but we're not the same. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he who plants and he who waters are one, one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The idea around personal growth requires us to humble ourselves and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to humble myself. Instead of judging other people, I need to be judged by them. That's two different things. Why is what they're saying making me uncomfortable? What, what, what is it about this? Is, this? is this poison that needs to be extracted or is this something I need into my life? Now, this took me much longer than I thought to get through the first three slides. So, so let, me, let me fast forward the talk a bit. Now, <laughs> I think what we have to do to grow is we have to acknowledge the dis-ease that the diversity or disagreement creates in us. When, 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 we, when we look at something from a different perspective, and there's two possibilities. Someone's wrong and I need to round the troops to prove my point over theirs. Boring. Or I'll just separate myself and have nothing to do with the person causing the dis-ease, which of course will stifle our growth. See, there's four ways to handle new information. Four ways to assimilate information that makes us uncomfortable, right? I'm going to use a table as an example. Oops. There's four ways to do it. One way is to consume it, right? So something happens, some information is given, we haven't considered it before, we just eat the whole thing, right? The second way is to vomit it. So something in it makes us uncomfortable, so we just destroy the whole lot of it, right? And, and I see people do this all the time. I had somebody, this is literal, I had somebody tell me about a book they read, and they said, hey, Shane, by page nine, he said one thing I disagree with, so I'll never read anything he wrote again. I'm like, are you nine? 
you can't wrestle with stuff? Like, really? That's vomited, right? The third is to tolerate it. So is to go, you know what? It's not so unlike what I already think. I'll, I'll, I'll let you be on the table. The fourth way is to accommodate it. It's, you know what? I think, I think my dish could use a sprinkle of that, but not too much. Not too much. So we can either consume it, we can vomit it, we can tolerate it, or we can accommodate it. And I would say that as followers of Jesus, who see Christ as the ground of being, that we need to reject all four of those. Because here's the problem with all four. All four put us in charge of what's true and what's not. All four assume that we've already figured it out. And, and I get to decide what's in and what's out and what's right and what's wrong without any wrestling or any consideration that somebody else might have a viewpoint that is beneficial to me. Because here's the truth of it. When I was 16, I took a summer job landscaping. I hated it. It's why I got so much education. I never wanted to have to do that ever. In Charleston, South Carolina, it's only 114 degree heat index, um, 90% humidity. And the 16-year-old who just started, he gets the crappiest job, which is the weed eater, right? So they put you on the end of this machine with the and, the, and you're, you're just, you're just, your arms are about to fall off, you know. And you look over and you see the guy on the riding lawnmower and everything in you just wants to be that guy. It doesn't hit you that he's 53 and out of options himself. But, <laughs> but you're 16 and you're hot and you're like, oh. <coughs> and we, we had to do this huge apartment complex, 16 hours of work for two crews. And I'm just weed eating around the building. And I came around to the side and there was these purple weeds like that. I know, sure. Gone. Uh, I know. <laughs> 20 minutes later, the owner of the place come out. He cut down my purple passions. He cut down, and evidently, purple passions are a very expensive plant that takes it a long time to get up, but right before it blooms, it's very beautiful and very expensive. As a matter of fact, it was, it was a week's wage to replace them, I can tell you, because I had to weed eat for free for a week <laughs> to replace this lady's purple passion. And, and here's my point. Sometimes when we encounter new truth or truth we haven't considered yet, sometimes it's a weed that needs to be extracted. Sometimes. Sometimes it's the bud before the blossom. And we cut it out of our lives just before the truth of it was going to change our life. And part of wrestling is understanding that if there's only one God and Christ is the solid center, we should be able to wrestle and discuss anything without setting ourselves above other people, without setting ourselves up as the filter of simulation. I love this quote by Thomas Merton. It's a brilliant guy. Oops. Disagreement and diverse interpretation is often the elixir that moves the former version of ourselves to a better version. If the you from 10 years ago saw the you of today and did not think you were a heretic, then you're not growing. So, when we talk about scripture, and we talk about genre confusion and static appropriation and historical arc and knowing and unknowing and naming and denaming, really what we're talking about is we're talking about a commitment that we all should have to express and explore truth in all three levels, the literal, 
the meaning, and the evental. To honor oneness at a radical level with no expectation of sameness and to realize that every day we wake up, somebody else has something to teach us and we have something to teach somebody else. Because if I understand one one-thousandth of one percent and you understand one one-thousandth of one percent and we just so happen to understand different one one-thousandths of one percent, if we get dogmatic with each other, we're not gonna learn anything. But if we humble ourselves and hear the other person out, we might actually double our understanding about God just through humility. And you'll never, ever read that in the Bible, that we can know God by being loving to others and through humility. You'll never see that in Scripture, (laughs) ever. So, my brothers and sisters, may we be people who are committed to expressing the truth in the most meaningful ways, not just the most truthful. Because it can't get more truthful than truth, but it can get more meaningful by committing ourselves to exploring all